by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world, then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing, rags-to-riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires, many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour I started in the paving business right out of high school, and with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over 1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this, if you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you wanna be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. Hey, Chris, we've got a great, great guest today on Ditch Digger CEO. I'm pretty excited. How about you? Oh, man, I'm very excited. Let's talk to him. We've got it. We've got a, a guy. We talk about differentiation all the time. And uh, Glenn, Glenn Meekum is a huge differentiator in, in, the, in this industry that he's creating. And we're excited to have him. Welcome, Glenn, to Ditch Digger CEO. Hey, Gary, it's great to be with you. Chris, great to be with you as well. So, so Glenn, you know what? Uh, we, we love having people on this on, on the podcast that really differentiate in a big way. I believe you differentiate or you die when it comes to businesses. If you want to be the world's best in what you do, you got to differentiate strong with some great value propositions that others might not think about. And I got to tell you, you've got a great one here, buddy. So I can't wait to get started. Um, we, we, we want to start, though, Glenn, with uh, kind of Kind of your, you know, your upbringing and, and how you got into this business world and why why you love it so much, why you love being an entrepreneur and how that all came about. So if you can just start from the from the beginning, buddy, what was it like as a, as a kid and what gave you this vision that you could survive in the in the world of business? Well, that's a, thanks, Gary. Uh, I, I grew up just outside. I was born in New York City. Grew up outside New York City, um, in the suburb north of town. And um, I have always had. Um, I've always been a really good salesman. I've always enjoyed being with people and, uh, I, um, I've always had kind of entrepreneurial ambitions. So, um, I guess the, the start for me was in my education. I, I also really enjoyed school. I enjoyed sports. I enjoyed school and I worked hard at all that. And, um, my strat, so, you know, my, in my first business, I was 12 years old. I started a lawn cutting business. I know you'd appreciate that. And I did that for a number of summers and I really, I learned so much. And my dad, my dad was a great mentor about business. He was passionate about, you know, delivering quality and making sure that the customer was happy. And, and I learned a lot of lessons just, in, you know, with my lawn cutting business. And then in college, I had a painting business two summers. And that, that tied into my military experience. Cause I, I went to Harvard actually on a military scholarship for the army and to become an army officer. And uh, so I'd, I'd be at boot camp like half the summer, six or eight weeks. And then I'd have four weeks at the end. And I'd always paint a house or two. And I got, I had younger brothers, I'd employ them or I employ, you know, other kids and we'd paint a house or two at the end of the summer. And um, 
you know, so I always had this entrepreneurial streak. And then um, I, but I, I, I pursued my, my education. I got the best education I could. I, I went to Harvard undergraduate. I worked, I, I, then I graduated. I went to the army for a while. Um, and then I got my first job in business was with Kraft General Foods and marketing. And I learned a ton about marketing and about everything, you know, positioning and pricing and um, product quality. And I learned a lot about logistics and manufacturing. And I just, that was a great experience. Although I also, I always tell people, and I tell my own kids, I have five kids and I've been married 34 years with my wife, Diane. And I tell my kids, thank you. But I tell my kids all the time, you know, you got to learn through both positive and negative experience. And, you know, I learned a lot. I'll tell, maybe we'll talk about it later. I learned a lot of great things as an army officer, learned a ton of great stuff, but I also learned, I also had some negative experience too. I learned some things to avoid. Same thing with Kraft General Foods. I learned a lot of great stuff, but I also learned some things like, okay, I'll never do that if I run a business. And then um, I went back to Harvard. I went to Harvard Business School and had that same attitude of I need to learn and, and get as much knowledge as I can. And then I left Harvard Business. Well, during the middle of Harvard Business School, I had to go back in the Army. I volunteered and served in the first Gulf War. So I was a combat engineer uh, platoon leader in the first Gulf War in 1990-91. Then I got done with that, finished business school, and I went to the consulting firm McKinsey. And I did, and this is interesting, I did a lot of uh, strategy work. I did some commodities trading work. I was in Houston, Texas. And I also did some sourcing work where, um, you know, helping large corporations save money on their purchasing. And I stayed there at McKinsey two and a half years. Great, great experience. I, 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 I had mostly positive experience at McKinsey. I learned so much. But the lifestyle wasn't really for me. And so then I got a great job offer to go to GE. And I joined um, General Electric Corporation up in Connecticut, moved up to, you know, the Connecticut area. There were, the headquarters was in Fairfield, Connecticut. This is in 1994. And I um, joined an internal consulting group. It was Jack, sort of an intern, internal consulting group, a lot of ex-consultants who worked on Jack Welch's staff. And uh, I did that for a year. And it's it, it's interesting. There was a lot of people focused on like mergers and acquisitions work. And there were people focused on operations improvement. There were people focused on all kinds of stuff in this group. There were like 30 of us. And there was like one guy focused on purchasing. And I knew from my experience that I could mint money by helping find better suppliers at better prices. And uh, so I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do purchasing. I mean, it's, it was so unglamorous, right? It was, this is, this is like ditch digging. Very unglamorous, but if if smart people focus on something that's unglamorous, sometimes you can make a lot of money. And I knew from my McKinsey experience, we could I could mint money with purchasing. So I joined this group, like two of us, and we started. Um, I started working across the GE businesses on how you, um, you know, save money by finding better suppliers, understanding what we're buying, you know, getting scale, all those kind of things. And this was 1994. The browser hadn't come out yet, but the internet was sort of starting to happen. And um, we had this idea of maybe we could take bids on the internet. So we did. And we realized real quick, okay, not only could we accept bids on the internet, but if bids came in from a supplier on the internet in the process of confirming the bid back to that one supplier, we could confirm that bid to all the other suppliers bidding. So we could create real-time global interactive auctions. I mean, interactive auctions in real time, which had never been done before. And um and so I, I stayed with GE for about six or eight months after that, working on that idea within GE. But I said, you know, there, I mean, as good a company as it was at the time, you know, it was still a big corporation. And, and I was just, 
my, my, you know, back to the lawn cutting and the painting, I'd always wanted to start my own business. And I had a zillion ideas as a, you know, as a teenager, then in my twenties, at this point, I'm almost, I was 30 and it was like, wow, this, this internet thing, using the internet to improve industrial sourcing is a big idea. And so I, I, I checked out a GE. I was only there a year. I left and I started a company called Free Markets. That was in 1995. And it was basically creating, um, you know, it was doing it, it just using the internet to automate the sourcing process, the, the finding suppliers, the writing of requests for quotation and requests for, for proposal, and then the the negotiation process between suppliers to get to price, to get to end deals. And um, so it was like, you know, and we invented, had a whole bunch of um, patents on the whole process of downward price auctions. So my company, my company and I, we invented downward price auctions on the internet. It saved companies, you know, millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. We, I started the company in 95, took it public in 1999 and then uh, sold it to another public company in 04. And, um, one reason I'm here today is I'm ambitious and I like to keep contributing, but we took our company public in December 1999, which is at the height of the internet bubble. And we were all, all the insiders, we were all locked up. And then the crash, the, the first big internet crash happened in March of 2000. So, um, you know, I ended up doing extremely well with this thing, but uh, on paper, I was a billionaire for a while, but that didn't last long because of the internet bubble crash. So, um, but then, you know, we... I, we we kept building the company. We we got it to about two hundred million in revenue, and eventually sold it to another company called Ariba, and then Ariba eventually sold to SAP, the German software company. Yeah, Ariba. That, Ariba. What was that? Two thousand what? You sold to them? Two thousand four. We sold it in two thousand four. Took it public and took free markets public in nineteen ninety nine, and then sold it to Ariba. Actually, merged. It was a fifty five forty five merger. So we were forty five percent of the value. They were fifty five percent. That merged the two companies together in 04. Then I left. And then, you know, um, a great guy named Bob Calderoni was the CEO. He was not the founder of Ariba. He had succeeded a guy named Keith uh, Keith Kroc, who was the founder. Maybe two or three years, maybe in 01 or 02, Bob succeeded Keith as the CEO. And then Bob was the CEO when they when we merged Free Markets and Ariba together. And he did a great job. He did a fabulous job because um, – they eventually sold to S. When we when we merged the two companies together in 04, the combined market cap was like 1.1 billion, and um, in 2012 they sold it to Ariba for something like five or six billion. I mean they did they did really really well in those eight years, and uh, in the meantime I had moved on to you know I left right after the the sale or the merger. Well, it's funny, funny thing, Glenn, is I, I'm not bought, I'm not invested in stocks too much. I do a little here and there, played around, but not very much. And I, I got hit hard in the in 2000, 2000 2001, and, and to that time. But that, but I I know I bought a Reba stock. Somebody told me about a Reba stock, and then in the you know mid 2000s, 2005, six, seven, whatever it was. And I, and I and I know I wasn't in it long, maybe a year or two. For me, that's you know that's probably yeah. common. If I'm in a stock, and I did, I did find it. I, I don't know what yeah. years was I did find it. And I gained, I gained, and I didn't know what what the heck they even did. But somebody told me to buy yeah. him, and I, you know, found out. But that's funny. That's the part. It was a good, it was a good company. And Bob, Bob is the CEO, and then a, a lot of members of my team stayed, and and they did a great job together. So that was that was the whole free market story. But then I, you know, I, after 04, when I left, um, I started doing super angel investing, and I, I did very well with a number of different investments I made. And um, a lot, all those are over. Like I, you know, and of course I lost money on some, but I, I did really well on a few. 
Um, and I have one investment left over from them that's still going, which is called niche.com, N-I-C-H-E.com. And it's literally the place on the internet to find your niche. So if you're, a, if you're a young person in high school trying to figure out where to go to college, niche.com is like the top site on the internet to figure out where you want to go to college. And then actually now they have this direct admissions program where you can actually apply directly to a whole bunch of colleges through niche. And that business, it's a, the founding CEO is a guy named Luke Skirman, who's just terrific and brilliant and a wonderful entrepreneur and a great guy. And um, so he's the founding CEO. He runs the company every day. I've been chairman of the board since I invested like 19 years ago now. And uh, that business is took a long time to get to where it is, but it's booming. And so that's actually, that's actually one of my sidelights is being chairman of the board of Niche and advising Luke in the background. But uh, that's cool. Yeah, it that, seems like, it, like that. It seems like that business could be used um, to find your niche, not just in school and education, but also in business, right? Yeah, so they're they have a bunch. You know, the niche strategy is a multi-vertical strategy, and the the number one vertical is the college, you know, uh, undergraduate vertical. The number two vertical is actually K through twelve. So helping parents figure out where to send their kids to K through twelve school, and it, even you know, you're moving to a new city or a new community. It's like, what's the best public high school or best public school system here? If I want to send my kids to public school, where's you know, help determine where you want to live. That's right. another vertical is where to live. Um, the, the, the fourth vertical is where to go to um, grad school. And then the fifth vertical is actually the career vertical. And um, niche is just booming. It's a, it's, it's a fairly large company now. It's, you know, like 500 employees. And um, I won't quote the exact revenue number, but it's, it's, a, it's a big number and it's doing extremely well. And um, one, of the, one of the real growth opportunities for that company is, is not only to keep building out this the, the education verticals, but other verticals eventually. So it's, it's doing really well. What was the third vertical you mentioned? So the first is, 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 you know, undergraduate college. The second is K through 12 education. The third, that the third is actually where to live because where to live and where to send your kids to school are so closely aligned. And then the fourth vertical is graduate school. And the fifth vertical is where to work. And, um, so, and, and like I said, those are, those are the five verticals. This company is just, it's, it's large and growing. It's, it's actually, it's actually going to be cash flow positive and profitable in, in 2024, almost uh, profitable in 2023, despite its growth and despite its size, it does so well that it's, it, it's a real, real business. But that sounds really cool. Yeah. You should, talk, you should, you should talk to Luke Skirman sometime on this podcast. He's a terrific, terrific entrepreneur, but you know, and, and, and part of the lesson of, of Luke and Luke Skirman and, and niche is that it takes stick to to succeed sometimes. I mean, he always believed in the business and I believed in it too, but it, it took a long time. It's not like, it's not like, you know, in, in back in my world in free markets, right. You know, I started a business in 1995 first couple of years getting it off the ground were hard, but then it just, it just exploded. And then we took it public. I I, I took that company public four years and nine months after I founded it. I mean, that is just, that, that doesn't even happen anymore. That was, that was of that era. Right. And uh, now, now it takes a lot longer, but it it takes, you know, you got to really stick to things to succeed. If you really believe in something and it makes sense and you can build a great team, all you got to have all that, but then you got to stick to it. You, you, it's not like there's, it's not like there's flashes in the pan. It doesn't, you know, you don't get to see, you know, you, you know, this, you don't succeed 
overnight. It's it's it takes a lot, a lot of years, a lot of times to succeed. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's it's sticking to it and understanding when you should pivot, where that pivot should be, right? Because so yeah. often you start out this great idea. And and I, I get a, a business right now, I'm, I'm selling my last 10% setup is an idea that I had, my son and I had, year, when Uber started getting popular years ago, and we're in the trucking dump truck business and the paving business, we said, man, wouldn't it be nice if there's an Uber of dump trucks? So we built we built it, basically. And and um, the CEO I had was was just not culturally not a fit for us, for me and and, and my team. So I ended up uh, putting, you know, saying it's for sale and I sold it for, you know, not a bad, you know, not, not a lot of money, but six or seven million back, you know, five years ago. And uh, he went on with a new company and uh, really did did a pretty good job in this thing. But it, it's it's selling right now for just under 70 million. And I and I I didn't expect it, it would come back to do much because I didn't have that much confidence in the, in the in the leadership of the organization that we built. But at the same time, we're building other things, right? And I have another technology company that now is a, worth a couple hundred million, I think, that we built, we were building at the same time. And so it worked out because we focused on that more. And this this guy went along, went, uh, went and built this company with this new, the new ownership, the new uh, majority partners, and they got along fine, right? I mean, for me, for us, it wasn't the, the, the core values weren't there for me. But it, it worked out for the new the new owners, and they've done fine, right? It sold yeah. it for 10, 10 times what they what they paid for it back uh, five years ago, right? And so yeah, the Uber trucks in the construction industry, there's a few companies doing it, but the new company that's buying this company, I think, will probably take it to you know multi billion dollar value if they if they do what what it set out what it set out to be. But again, you just don't know, right? And and I think that you know we, that that business pivoted a few times, and and will probably pivot again before it gets to the real value. Um, but again, stick, sticking to it, like you're saying, you got a dream, stick to it, right? You, you got to know sometimes to get off of, of, of what you think is a good idea. I mean, it, it could be done many different ways. And so, yeah. um, and, and then again, I, I would love to talk to him because I, I believe that in the career world, we have a problem when it comes to, we don't have enough kids understanding the, the, in the skills, in the trades world, the money is really big now. So I don't care where you're in the country. If you're good at, at what we do, you will make over a hundred thousand dollars in a couple of years out of high school, right? And you're and you're having your if you like heavy equipment, you're you, and you like technology. The technology today is beyond most people's dreams as far as what we what we use three D for and, and AI for and all that. And if a kid you know wants to make great money but maybe isn't college material, this doesn't want to go to college or can't afford to, you know, we've got some great opportunities. So I feel like niche. If it, if it was one where it said, "Hey, what you know?" If, if it interviewed kids to understand what their niche was, sometimes you're going to find out that it's just not a, 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 you know undergraduate uh, yeah. degree, or maybe they went to college and they got a degree in business, but they can make a couple hundred thousand within five or six years in construction, and they like it, right? So um, that's a great yeah, it's a great perspective. I think you're absolutely right. But it's um, and you know, going back to what you said about pivoting, I I, I agree with you. You can't you got to listen to the market. You've got to, you know, evolve based on the feedback you're getting. I think a lot of times people are not successful as entrepreneurs because they're not really listening to customers or potential customers. So you've got to make changes. Although I think people do overuse the word pivot because when I hear pivot, I hear what I think about is, oh, they make a a huge, you know, complete change, you know, because I think a lot of times success isn't that you're 
this didn't work, so now you're doing that. No, no, it's more like it's more like evolutionary. You're you're listening and you're making changes along the way, and and that's how you tailor what you're doing to to, to be successful. But so I like that yeah. we say pivot doesn't mean a major pivot, right? Right. Um, right. Is it and, and what you said a minute ago? As we grow businesses consistently, the most important thing is that is that feedback loop, right? I mean, if we're listening to customers and we and we we really value the feedback loop, customer in most cases engage with you a lot more as you're trying to solve their problem, right? And and a, and a lot of the times in my early years, I didn't do a very good job in that. I really believe that I knew I knew more than the customer. This is what the customer needs. We're gonna do this because I know for sure this is what they need, right? Yeah. I was not right very often, okay. And eventually, as we like the Uber dump trucks or or what we do with uh, we assess properties using drones and AI and it's a technology company we have, or just our paving businesses, right? We we value that feedback loop more than ever before, and it pays off in just huge dividends because your customer kind of not only they help you help you understand their real problems, but then once you solve their problems, they're there for life as a friend because they were part of building this thing, whatever it is, right? Kind yeah, of cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. But back to my story. So, you know, basically I, I invested in niche and I invested in some other early stage companies as just as an individual angel entrepreneur, you know, angel investor. Super, I, I was really a super angel investor. And then I, I enjoyed that. So I started a venture firm. So I raised a $75 million oh, fund. What's, what's the difference between an angel, angel investor and a super angel investor? Amount of money. Okay. You know, maybe, maybe an angel investor throw, you know, throws in, you know, 25 or 50,000 or something, but it, you know, a super angels, maybe somebody who's already been successful and could do more, you know? So like I, you know, with me, my, my initial investment in niche way back when was a million dollars and, and I led the series a round. So, you know, that was more of a super angel investment, but then, then that led me to starting a formal venture firm. So I started a, it was called my, my former COO at Free markets again, and David Becker, who was a friend of mine from Harvard Business School. We started a firm called Meekum Becker Venture Capital together, and we uh, we invested a we raised a seventy million seventy five million dollar fund, and then invested that and did very well with that. But you know that's it, it's a um, and we invested in a whole bunch of companies, and and some of them did very, did well. But it's that was starting in 06. And um, one thing I learned about that though, by the time I got to the end of the investment period, which was at the end of twenty twelve into twenty thirteen, was I realized that I enjoy being an operator a lot more than I enjoy being an investor. And sometimes you end up finding a guy like, I'll mention his name again, Luke Skerman at niche.com, who's just a, a wonderful guy and a great leader and somebody who wants to learn and, and is always improving. Unfortunately, as a venture investor, or even as an angel you know, investor to early stage businesses, that's more rare than you'd hope. You know, a lot of this, maybe this goes back to the story you were telling where, you know, sometimes there's a clash of culture, there's a clash of beliefs, there's a clash of values. And, you know, sometimes um, people are really, really great and really sweet and really nice and really on top of it before you invest. And then you stroke that check and then they're a lot harder to work with. And yeah. so, um, so bottom line was I decided that I didn't want to stay in the venture business for the rest of my career. So it was just about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 10 years ago in 2012 and 2013 when I was deciding what to do next. And I had this idea for forever. And as I told you, I told you off, off camera and off microphone, I was telling you the story before that I, I'm a family guy. I've got, um, you know, I've been married 34 years now. Back then it was 24 years and I have five kids and, uh, 
now back then we just had the five kids. Now I've got five kids, two grandsons, and one, a granddaughter on the way. So we're you know I'm a family guy and I'm I'm married to a great family girl and uh, we we love our family and I had all these memories. I had all these photos and videos and and then documents from my career. I had all this stuff. And then I, I love I'm actually interested in genealogy and family history. And I had stuff from the past too. And I was trying to figure out what do I do with this stuff. And I realized that if it was just physical, if it was just you know videotapes and photos and stuff in boxes that that stuff was going to get lost. I mean, it's just, it, there's one copy, yeah. it's in a box in the basement, nobody's enjoying it, nobody's seeing it, nobody's learning from it, and it's it's going to get flooded. If there's a flood in the basement, it's gone. Or if, yep. you know, you know, it things, the physical stuff is going to get lost. I, I say that a lot of times, with, you know, a lot of people our age um, have had the experience of older parents who've, you know, are gone into assisted living or they passed away, and it happens with everybody. It's inevitable. And I think a lot of family memories have ended up, you know, in the bottom of dumpsters and and eventually in landfills, right? And it just gets lost. And so, and that's that's just the physical stuff. E even by 2012, 2013, you know, everybody had one of these and you're producing memories all the time, like every single day. And then a lot of stuff gets lost and over the digital cliff too. And so I said, well, you know, what I need is for all my family memories, all these photos and videos of my kids when they were little and, you know, growing up and my career stuff and, you know, stuff from my IPO and we took free markets public in 1999. Where is that? It's got to be in the cloud, it, but it's got to be permanent. It can't be temporary. So I started looking at all the terms of service of all the major cloud storage and sharing and social media providers. And I realized something, which is that they're all temporary. You know, bottom line is that, and I won't mention specific brand names, but with any of them, read the terms of service. If it's an advertising model, um, like a social media site with an advertising model, they data mine every single thing you upload. They actually assert ownership of it once you upload and they have the right to delete it whenever they want. And if you're no longer alive and you're no longer valuable to advertisers, they will delete your stuff. Um, and then there's the, then there's the, uh, you know, the, the, the pay as you go cloud storage model where, and a lot of people love, you know, everybody loves, you know, ARR, annual recurring revenue, right? So all these businesses are built on getting monthly payments. And um, th that's true of the little businesses. It's true of the big businesses. And the problem is, though, as a consumer, if you stop paying, what happens? If, you, if you've if you saved 40,000 photos and 10,000 videos and all these documents and stuff on somebody's site, and then you stop paying, which you are going to do when you get Alzheimer's or when you get dementia or when you die or when you get distracted or whatever, eventually, even if you're the most conscientious person in the world, you're going to stop paying. What happens when you stop paying? They delete. They say it out loud. They say it's right there in the terms of service. The largest provider in the world right now, the most valuable company in the world, which is the largest provider of cloud storage. I won't mention their name. They say very clearly that when you die, they delete your stuff. And most people don't know this. So anyway, I, I, I realized this 10 years ago and I said, wow, you know, what the world needs is a permanent um, cloud storage and sharing uh, place where people can save and organize and share all their saving, save and organize all this stuff, but then share it with all their friends and family. Cause just saving, it's no good. You got to, can't be locked away in a Dropbox somewhere, or excuse me, it can't be locked away, you know, in a safe deposit box somewhere. Cause who, who's seeing it? No, it's got to be in a place where you can share, but it has to be secured. It can't be, there can't be data mining. It's got to be like people control their own 
stuff. So, so basically, and then what we did is we started doing the research and started digging into it. And I was, con I had this conviction about this permanent, you know, cloud storage and sharing. But then I also realized, oh, as we got in the market and started you know, working the business, we and this was not a pivot, but this was a learning and a evolution. We realized that yes, there were a few good men like me. I like the Marine Corps phrase, you know, a few good men. There were a few yeah. good men who really cared about the family memories, but um, but man, there were just tons of fabulous women. I mean, the, the the customer base were really the fabulous moms and grandmas out there who really really loved the family memories. And so um, and what we realized was talking with a lot of them and started to serve a lot of them was wow, they really want a complete memory keeping site. So it it's really a pain for mom if she's uploading to one site to do her holiday card and then she's digitizing somewhere else and she's getting thumb drives back, which she could lose of the old videotapes. And then she's, oh, and she's syncing her phone to yet another site and everything's a, everything's a digital mess. It's incredibly stressful. Everything's everywhere. And by the way, if everything's a mess and it's, it's all everywhere, it's all going to get lost too. It's all going over the digital cliff. So what I realized was, okay, we need to, for, so this is my, the company is forever at forever.com. And, um, and bottom line is we realized, okay, what, what women need and a few good men is they need a complete and permanent and trustworthy memory keeping site on the internet, in the internet cloud. And, uh, and that's what we built. So over 10 years now, and, um, and uh, you know, we're, we're, my team and I, we're just, we just bang away every day on building forever.com and uh, you know, forever. And uh, we've got, you know, it's, we're not huge yet, but we've got, uh, you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands of paying clients. And we've got tens and tens and tens of thousands more active users. And um, and it's a great model. And people can save all their stuff permanently. They can do all their printing. So their holiday cards, their photo books, they can digitize all their old stuff. They can share with their friends and family. And it's all in one place. And I mentioned to you before offline that uh, they can even do genealogical research. And, you know, not only can you digitize old stuff in, that's in your basement, you can research and find the really old stuff from your family. And then you can, of course, sync your phone and get all the new stuff and have everything in one place, one forever account that's going to be there. We guarantee your, you know, when you pay for forever storage and you endow your memories, um, we guarantee your lifetime plus a hundred years guaranteed with a goal of many, 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 many generations beyond that. And people say, well, how is that possible? And I say, well, um, MetLife was founded in 1864. It's now got two or three trillion under management, the life insurance company. Nobody worries about MetLife surviving, right? And oh, by the way, the first, you study the history, the first 20 years of MetLife were pretty darn dicey in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, because it was such a new radical idea to life to insure people's lives, right? And then how about DuPont Corporation? That's been around for over 250 years. And um, and yeah, you know, a chemical company like that, it it's something people need. It's been well managed. It it merged with with Dow now Dow Dupont, and um, and the bottom line is that you know that's over 250 years old. And how about you know how about Oxford University? Its endowment is over 850 years old. So whether it's a a, a private university model or whether it's a private business model, um, there are there are institutions out there that have lasted for many many generations, and it's all about being really having an institution that's really focused on the customer has great governance and has a lot of money. You got to, you got to build up a huge pot of money, like a huge endowment, a huge reserve. Yeah. fund. 
So in, in, in uh, so in your case, right? I mean, for for this to continue and all that, how, how do you do go about that? When you look at you got you've got double hundred teammates on your team now, is that right? It's and it's well, we have we have seventy five full time employees, and then we have two thousand six hundred forever ambassadors who are commission only who are out there, um, you know, selling forever and helping people with forever and 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 generating more buzz. So yeah, it's it's that it's that size. And okay. It's, so. But, yeah, with that, how, how do you uh, how do you ensure right that you know you're you're still a young guy, right? You got eventually you're, you want this thing to go on, right? What what does that look like to you? What does it look like to forever? So I think that you know building a so there's a couple parts that answer. It's we're we're determined to build a long lasting institution. So part of that is financial. When people buy forever storage, the majority of the money they pay for the storage goes into the forever guarantee fund, which is a endowment to it and it's the the for-profit uh parallel would be like a life insurance reserve fund so it's just like that legally and um basically it's a it's a pot of money that's growing that's in diversified set of inv investments and it's um it's intended to provide you know dividends and capital gains and income to pay for the storage so you know a little we distribute a little bit every year to help pay for that year's storage and then you know that grows over time as we scale and that gets bigger and bigger. The goal is to make that a very, very large fund that can that can endow the memories over the long period of time. And then, um, then of course, we have all these other services. So people are paying for the printing, they're paying for the digitizing, they're paying for the research, they're paying for all these other things, and and they're actually paying for some premium services on our site too. So that creates a lot of additional current income. So you know, it's we have to build a strong financial you know operating company every single year. And then also have this endowment on top. So that's the financial side, which we're making great progress in building. I mean, we're we're doing very well financially. And then in addition to that, it's about governance and succession. And so you know, we have a you know, I I can I'm the controlling. My wife and I are the controlling investors. Um, we've raised over thirty million dollars from outside sources. Plus, we've invested over six million dollars ourselves into the business. And um, so we're well funded. We continue to be well funded and. Um, we control, but you know what I'm doing. I have an outside board of directors. I'm accountable to. I'm not just some egomaniac, you know, running this myself. I, I'm the founder and CEO, but I have a board of directors I'm accountable to. And yeah, I'm I'm young. I'm, I I intend to do this for decades more. But eventually, um, yeah, I will. You know, I have a strong management team, but I will appoint and the board will confirm a successor. And you know that's the way these things have to go. And I, one thing I believe, I I don't believe that companies are successful. Or for, for that matter, you know, universities, other institutions, if there's a if there's a continual parade, you know, musical chairs of leadership, that's not good for a business or good for an institution. So I think there need to be leaders who really put the institution first and stick with it for a long time. So, you know, I've already been doing this for 10 years full time. I see it at least another 10 years for me. But then, um, you know, yeah, at some point there will be a successor who takes on the, you know, for the next generation. And Glenn, the other thing is this, though, I mean, you're smart enough to see, though, I mean, you don't need, I mean, a lot of people don't think they need a board, right? And, and you know, you've got, uh, you know, you've got all, all the stock you need, you're, you're the leader, the CEO, you, you know, some people would say, I don't need a board, I'm not, you know, they're, they're just not going to bring much value. Well, you know, you build a board that you know will bring value, it's it's a no-brainer. We, we, you know, we build boards for everything we do nowadays, and, and uh, every company we have, or a group of companies, too, has a board. And and uh, 
you know, they're, they're really, really sharp people that challenge us to be better. And no matter who we are and not the experience we have, right, a board challenges us to be better. And, and, and they're, they've, they've got the, are, are interested at heart, but they're not afraid to challenge us. And I think that that's something that a lot of people I know that have the success you've had um, will go into a business and say, I don't need a board. I don't need all this experience, right? Well, no, you're, you can always be challenged to be way better, especially when you find a board, a very diversified board of, of minds that are from all different aspects of business and experience. So I like what you're doing that, that you know, you, yeah. you've got all this experience, you still got a board and you, and you, and you listen to them. I agree with you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about governance and accountability and professionalism. You know, it's, I think some entrepreneurs build, you know, especially, and listen, if, if you own your business a hundred percent and have no outside investors, that's great. You know, you, 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 you have the right to run it however you want. Right. You know, one, any person does, but um, you know, if you're going to have a, if you're going to take money from outsiders and you're going to earn them a return over time, and um, you know, and you want to create a professional organization that can outlive you, or even just outlive your family, then, then yeah, you need to you need to put a board in place. You need to put you know professional governance in place, and that's that's a that's a key part of it. And the other th other do you know, I, I was kind of referring to two things. Um, you know, Jim Collins wrote this great book, Good to Great, and you know there were some some incredible concepts in there. One is you know to be successful in business, you got to look at the hard cold truth. You know you. You can't live in some fantasy world. You got to look at the real facts and make decisions on real facts. But another thing he talked about in that book was a level five leader. And, you know, there, there are a lot of great leaders who are level four leaders, but the key difference between a really great leader and a really, really terrific leader is the terrific leader puts the, the, the institution ahead of themselves. And, um, and, and I think that that's, that's a key thing. And that's part of this good governance is that, if it's not all about you, it's about the institution, then you, you, you have some accountability. You know, and I, back in, when I was in the army, I had one, one great part of my education was being in the officer training for the army and uh, many years ago. And I learned a lot of great leadership principles, but one of them, when I, I remember when I went to my first boot camp, I was 20 years old, the summer after my sophomore year of college and like the second or third day there, they're giving a lecture on leadership. And, you know, that's the way it works, you know, in between all that calisthenics and all the running around and marching and getting your butt kicked here and there, you know, they, they sit you down and they give you these training sessions, you know, and some, some officer was talking about leadership and he said, you know, he said, great leaders are also great followers. And at 20 year old Glenn, I'm like, that's not true. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a great leader. I'm not a follower. I'm a leader. But I realized though, is that great leaders, yeah, are accountable, you know, they're under the law. They're, if they're religious, they're under God and certain values and principles, right? Um, maybe maybe you're a, a great leader in a business or in a military or whatever, and you do have superior leadership you're accountable to. That's or you have a board you're accountable to. You know, so I really believe that that great leaders have the humility to be great followers too, and um, and that was just one key. So I think that's part of this professionalism that allows you to establish an institution that's going to last. Absolutely. I mean, kind of think about it as personal relationships with your wife, right? You're the one you love them. You're with the rest of your life. And I think there's many situations where you can be a great leader, but you go home and you better be a great follower too, because there's things she's going to be way better than you are. And if you're not following her, you're not going to be a very good partner, right? 
Well, you're right, Gary. And you know, I got to I got to tell you, I didn't I, I you know, this first time I met you and you just I didn't even I didn't say anything. I mean, I am sorry you lost your wife 3 years ago. You know, yeah, I'm, no, I'm I'm sorry yeah, for I was, that. I was a great follower there for 35 years. He she uh she was way better than me at, than me at many things, especially around the house raising our kids and and stuff. So I learned to follow her in many, many ways. And and and, and nowadays I've got an amazing girlfriend that they for about a year and a half now. And the same thing, she's really, really good at a lot of things. And if I if I think I'm a leader and I'm, I'm supposed to lead at everything, somebody like that of that quality is not going to be around very long because they they know they're better than you at a lot of things. And if you follow, you're going to be in a lot better shape. So boy, boy, that's in the. I'm so glad you brought that up about a relationship. That any good relationship, yeah, you're you may lead in some respects, but you better darn well follow in others to have a successful relationship. Yeah, and it's fun that way, right? Because you're, you know, there's, they're going to be good at things you're not going to be good at, and, and no matter, you know, every every relationship's different. But yeah, it's fun to pick and pick and understand. Hey, you know what? You got that covered. I'm not touching that. You know, whether you're building a house together, you're designing, you know, run furniture, whatever you're doing, each one knows who's where their strengths lie. And if you if you're honest with each other, once in a while you gotta flip a coin and say, you know, I really want this one. I I want to handle that or this, right? And and once in a while you flip a coin and say, okay, I got this or you got it, right? But overall, that's part of that's part of life is understanding where you where you should lead and where you should follow. And, and great leaders can do that. And yeah. and, and some. I think great leaders can't have very good relationships, don't have very good relationships in their personal life because they don't, they don't think that way maybe. Right. So. Yeah. Some people get their egos too big and then they, um, you know, that that can be a problem. That can be a big I, I problem. Take that to business too. Right. I mean, their business, we know the things as a leader you're good at and you know, the things you're, that your other people are much better than you at. And so, you know, stepping out of the way in many cases, you know, leading when it comes to maybe file, make, you know, you can file decisions a lot of times on major decisions. But man, when it comes to technology, we become one of the strongest technology companies in our space. And it's not because of me, because I suck with technology. I, I, I use this phone. I don't use a computer still, right? So so for me, you know, I'm blessed that I've got people around me who are super strong in technology. And I know where my strengths are. My strengths are more, you know, old school, you know, understanding equipment and productivity in the field, understanding process in the field, and then, and then understanding how to sell well. Besides that, I mean, a lot of things in my business, I step aside and let other people lead. And, and nowadays, I'm not even a CEO in any of my companies. I'm, I'm a chair, and I love being the chair. Um, and I, I can I can add my value whenever I need to. It, it works out really well because my my team my team of CEOs are doing a way better job than I could do. So so it's 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 awesome. That's great. I mean, yeah, you 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 really practice what you preach. Uh, I I've got two other things I learned in the army as as I mean I learned a lot of things, but two other things I wanted to mention on this 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 discussion. Um, one, and I know you'll agree with these based on this discussion. One is I learned this principle: put the troops first. Ah, yeah. And and this is another thing I think a lot of people you know yeah we 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 as entrepreneurs and leaders we need to make sure we're well paid. We need to make sure we look out for our interest. Absolutely. You know, we you have to do that. You can't be, you can't be a doormat. Okay. We, we all understand, understand that, but you know, it's, it's pretty natural to look out for your own interest. What takes some training is to put other people first. And, um, and that's what they, I tell you what, I don't, I, you know, you hear about bad leaders in the military and I'm sure there's some bad leaders, but I, I learned from a lot of great leaders and they were like, it's all about putting, you know, letting your your you know, people under you know that you're putting them first, that you're actively caring about them and actively looking out for their interests. 
And it starts with this little thing. It's this image, but it's so true. Another thing they teach you in like officer training in the military and for non-commissioned officers too, all leaders in the military is, you know, the leader always eats last. So imagine, you know, a day of training in the field, you know, maybe you had lunch at 10 a.m. or something, and now it's 6 p.m. and everybody's been humping it all day and blah, 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 blah. And finally it's time to eat. And there's, you know, there's a chow line and they brought out hot food, you know, from wherever and you're in the woods somewhere and there's this chow line and there's, you know, 150 soldiers there. You're the commander. You're one of the officers. You get at the back of the line and make sure everybody else eats before you eat. And, um, and that, I tell you what, that image is so valuable. Just, you know, Hey, when you're thinking about rate, you, you want to keep great people in your, in your business, you better make sure you're worried about raises for your really good people before you're worried about your own raise, you know, if you want to keep them. I have a grandfather who was a Navy commander, and he was a, a CB, and he and he t- he told me that same lesson many times, right? And uh, and I, he was a mentor of mine in my life. But um, it's it you know, what I what I what I did. People always ask me why I did this, but all the way up until I stopped snow, I stopped. We have a snowplowing business. We've always had so it's one business we've not scaled a lot across the country, but we've kept in it because we've got great customers that want us to remove their snow. So it's a it's a nice little business, and uh, we continue to grow it a little bit, but. When I, when I stopped snow plowing, only about probably 10 years, probably 12 years ago, I stopped snow removal, doing snow removal. And uh, I, I always believed I had to be the first one out and the last one in. And I, and I had the, the ability to stay awake for three, you know, two and a half, three days at a time. And so I could do it. And I felt there wasn't a danger or anything, right? I drank, you know, plenty of caffeine. I, I stayed fresh. I listened to good music. But either way, um, I, I did that con- all the way up until the time I stopped snow removal, and my and my my wife would tell me, and my, my you know people in the business say, Gary, you don't have to do that anymore. And I'd be like, man, no, I do. I, I, if I'm expecting some people to stay out for a day at a time, you know, 20 hours straight or whatever, I, they got to know that I can do it too. And I, I took yeah. it maybe a little too far sometimes, but overall, I think it was a good thing because I I, I never had a problem with people working a little harder, staying on a little longer. And snowplowing is a it's really a tough business, and it, yeah. you know. But it's actually kind of fun if if you if if you look at it competitively and sorry. But either way, I think it's important. It's such an important thing. And very oftentimes in my business, I looked at my customers as most important first. I took care of them first always, and everything everything you know uh, was second to them. But but I really do believe that if you take care of your team first, as you just said, your your customers are going to be taken care of very well, right? Yeah. If you just think about taking care of your team really well, and you're there for them. And, and they're going to take great care of your customers. So it all works out as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that, I love your example of this. You know, it, it's leading by, it's not only, it's putting people for, putting your your team first and leading by example. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the, that's the, the complete thought. I, 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 I totally agree with you. The other, another key thing I learned is the 70-30 rule. Have you heard of the 70-30 rule? I know, but I do the, use the 80-20 rule all the time. 80-20, maybe it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's this, this concept of, you know, some people get really, and this is a real danger in today's world too, with so much data, people get kind of data paralysis, analysis paralysis, where they just want more and more data and they can't make a decision. And um, one thing that the military really stresses with military leadership is you got to make a decision. The, the most painful thing as a subordinate is a leader who can't make a decision. And so and, and this is so true in business, just like it is in you know other spheres. It's like you know, get as much data as you can, but don't 
if, if gee, if you spent five hours analyzing it, that's enough. It's time to it's time to make a decision and go on. And it's like gather, you know, gather 70% of the information you can. That extra 30% is never worth the time. It's much better to make the decision on 70% of the information, make a decision, execute really, really hard, really as well as you can, and then make adjustments. It gets back to yeah. like the Jim, the Jim Collins idea of, you know, you're you're look at the brutal facts. It's like, okay, you make it you, you do you make a decision, you're executing. If you were wrong or if you need to make adjustments, you look at the facts and you make you make another decision. You make adjustments. And that is a that is a um a brand of leadership and a style of leadership that leads to success, makes people, makes subordinates really happy because things are happening. And um and it, it just it's it just it it leads to success. And it's whereas, so, Hundred percent, Glenn. You know, and that's it, kind of like do I use this this eighty twenty rule kind of similar? But you know, really, the enemy of of good is perfect, right? If you yeah. want to get things perfect before you before you go to market, you'll never get to market. It's never going to be perfect until actually you actually put it in the market and and test it, right? Use the feedback loop like we talked about earlier with your customers, and and you and you're honest to me, and you're saying, hey, this product's not perfect yet. It's a it's an idea that we think is going to solve a lot of problems. Not perfect. Would you help us get it as perfect as possible? It'll never be perfect. Would you help us get it to be as as close to perfect as possible, right? Because so often, like you said, you know, great ideas never come to fruition because you got in you got friends of mine are engineers and they're very analytic, right? And they won't bring it to market because they're afraid it's not good enough yet. But if if nobody's like your business, if nobody's ever done it before, get it out there and and, and go test it and, and learn from the market because. You know, you've you've done this, you know, enough in the business you've been in, but you're successful because you're not afraid of getting out there with with something that's that that's not perfect. Yeah. Honest with your customers that it's not. Yeah, it's so true. It, you know, I look back on forever the the version of forever we had out there ten years ago. It was just exactly ten years ago. It was fall of thirteen when we launched the first version, and uh, yeah, we've come a long, long way since then. But yeah, you're right. All the way along that path. We learned and we improved, and we didn't. We didn't even dream of some of the functionality and, and capabilities we have now. We hadn't even dreamed of it back then. We just we just got out there in the market and learned. I I had a my my co-founder at at Free Markets, uh, my first internet company was a guy named Sam Kinney. It is a guy named Sam, fabulous guy. He lives in uh, he lives in the Miami area uh, now, but um, he he had this great analogy he used to use because you know when I started for I I I left GE I you know, started this company and I was persuading Sam to join me and start it with me. And, and he did fortunately. And, and we had a great time building the company together. Um, but he used to say, you know, you don't, it's like you're in a company, you have a good job, you're earning good income, but you have this entrepreneurial desire to start something. You really want to get out there. And, uh, and how do you do that? And he said, well, you gotta, you gotta walk through the door. It's like, until you go through the door, you can't even see all the other opportunities that are out there. If you, if you, if you stay stuck on like the big company side of the door, you're never going to see the opportunities. You got to walk through that door. And yeah, I mean, you want to, you want to make sure you walk through the right door. You want to make sure you don't go after a bad opportunity, but man, you, you gotta, you gotta have the courage to walk through the door because once you walk through that door, then other opportunities open up. For sure, you know, and I've got uh, many examples of that, and they're a lot of fun to think about. But you know, Bernie Marcus is a friend of mine who's who is a founder of Home Depot. Yeah. One of the best, 
one of the best entrepreneurs in, the, in our country's history. And he was broke, pretty much broke at 50 years old, right? And, and he, uh, he went on his own because he, he was a CEO of a, a, a group of stores. And um, anyway, he had some major challenges with the state of New Jersey. It was, it was an attorney general that was coming after him from some big BS, uh, BS lawsuit. And uh, they fired him. The board fired him from the CEO job. He was pretty much broke. I mean, he, he, had, he had very little saved and all that. And then he went through that pretty quick. And they started the first version of Home Depot. And uh, anyway, what a great story, though. But he uh, he never walked out on his own before he got fired. It was a blessing to be fired, right? Yeah, good he, thing he got fired. He was he was totally broke at fifty, like fifty one, and then uh, got got a loan from a friend of his that became one of his partners. And um, he, uh, he he's you know at sixty years old, he was a billionaire. At ninety four years old, he's a, one of the greatest examples of an entrepreneurial success story has ever been. Yeah. And it was pretty much a 10, 15 year run for him, right? So. Yeah. So again, but but he went. He stepped through that door and said, "Okay, I'm fired. I guess I'm, I've always said I'm going to start something. It's time to do it." <laughs> you know what I like about Bernie? I've never met Bernie Marcus. You're you're lucky to be friends with him. Um, but I've seen him interviewed many times. And one thing I like about Bernie Marcus too is he's a patriot. Hundred percent. He cares. He's not he's not a big political guy, but he's a patriot. He cares about our society. He cares about our country. He wants our country to do well. He wants our people to do well, and I, I, I and he, that that comes across with him. And I just, and I really, I like that about him. Yeah. So I, I, I was on the phone the other day, and he's, and he, I, I love him. He's, a, he's a great mentor of mine, and, and, uh, and uh, he, that's all he talks about is what's this country going to be like if we don't do X, Y, and Z better, right? Or if we don't, if we don't find the right person to to run this country, what's it going to look like? And, and he does a lot for veterans, as you know. He does a lot for families, and uh, you know, ama just amazing. Him and his wife are, uh, are just amazing philanthropic uh, people. But uh, but anyway, what I love about him is um, is is he's not afraid to say what's on his mind. You know, many people you know don't like what he says sometimes because he's just very outspoken. But he he does it because he's got a huge heart and he cares. He's taking this 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 uh, the blessings he's received right in entrepreneurship. And he and he and he says now we're going to protect entrepreneurship and yeah uh, he he started an organization called Job Creators Network um, about 12 years ago and I was blessed to be one of the founders of it with him and we we've, we've won some big battles in this in the in the country just to, to really save I love your 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 I love your title your your name your business you know free markets because free markets is what we fight for right freedom and free markets yeah. and uh, anyway but we, Job Creators Network won the lawsuit against Biden in the with the vaccine mandate. We stopped. We stopped the va the vaccine mandate on the private sector workforce for about 80 million working Americans. I was I was the first plaintiff on that lawsuit, and then we also stopped the student loan bailouts. That was our that was us again. Um, half a trillion dollars of bailouts that we didn't think were were good for 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 small business taxpayers, and it was a big win again. So Bernie's the guy that had this vision to build this thing, Job Creators Network. My my vision. I'm a I'm a, a, a finance chair of the board nowadays. And my vision is to continue it going to get to get to go stronger than ever um, in, in the coming year so that we have businesses that stand up for free markets. So your your free markets, that, that the name of that yeah. company really hits me. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I like the Fs. You know, my first Internet business was free markets. And now now my my current main, you know, niche, of course, was with an N. But um, my my current main business is forever. So I always think to myself, like something about that F, you know, the F uh, letter, you know, and, and entrepreneurship for me. 
So well, aspirational too, right? Forever, it's aspirational. Free market, you know, free markets yes. to keep free markets. It's aspirational to, to protect this country. It's our veterans, and it's our it's it's this great system where anybody can start with a dream and 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 really accomplish their American dream. Yeah. And, well, it's and, also and it's also incentives, right? What, what you talked about the student loan bailout thing. The the problem with that is that it creates the wrong incentive. You know, if if people can just waste money on, you know, get a degree in basket weaving and not really study hard and not really be able to do anything with it. And then they get bailed out of that. Well, then you're creating an incentive for a whole new generation to do the same thing. Yes. And, uh, you know, and people need to, I, 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 you know, I know people who don't pay off their, I, I know I have, I have a person I know very well here. I'm, I live in Pittsburgh and, um, you know, they, they, they just, they, they don't want to pay up their student loans. They figure eventually they'll get for, forgiven. And it's like, yeah. but, but there's always money for vacations. There's always yeah. money for restaurants. There's always money for this, that, and the other thing, but, but there's no money to pay off the student. And they had, they just been prudent with their money for, you know, they would have had those loans paid off years ago. And it, it's like, you know, and, and there are a lot of us who've saved a lot of money. I, I saved money for my, obviously for my own children paid for all their college. I'm now saving a lot of money for grandchildren and investing it for their college. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's what we need to encourage. I think in everybody is, is being willing to save and invest and not get a free handout. 100%. Accountability is a big thing. When you're accountable in your life, you feel good about yourself, right? When you're accountable to raise your family, to feed them, to, to pay for some educations, they would buy a car and pay for the car. Right. I mean, those are the beginning. It's the beginning yeah. in your life of, of accountability is what what really builds the foundation of accountability in the future as you build a business and pay for a business or you're in a business and you, and you get to be a leader in the business because you're accountable. I mean, American dream is pretty easy to access at all different levels, in my opinion, but it starts with accountability. And if we if we start you know, giving everybody a pass on, on doing bad things or not being responsible, boy, our country looks a lot different in the future. So yeah. uh, we're going but, okay, so so let's. I want to get Chris in because I want to. Chris has got it. He's itching to ask questions. I'm hugging you. I'm hugging you for myself, like I like to do. All right. So Chris, can you come on in and uh, I want you to fire some questions at, at Glenn and uh, and uh, let's hear, let's hear what you got. Yeah, sure. Glenn, this has been awesome. So uh, a couple of questions. First, forever.com, niche.com, freemarkets.com. Just those URLs alone have to be worth hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. How, how did you like get those? those? That's that's an incredible accomplishment there. Well, free markets was, um, you know, this was it was March of 1995, and we just signed up for it for 12 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's when I got Meekum.com too. I, I wish I had been smart enough to sign up for a whole slew of them, but we were just way ahead of the curve. They, that nobody was, nobody had, they were just all available. Everything was available. Um, niche, uh, they did, I, I was not directly involved in that acquisition. Uh, the team, um, you know, they, uh, I, I'm in, I'm in Gary's role. I'm the, I'm the chairman of that one. So Luke and his team running the company every day, they were able to acquire that for, I don't know what the exact amount of money was, but it was a reasonable amount of money mm -hmm. um, with forever. I had the idea for the company. I was like, we need a permanent, complete place on the internet to keep people's memories and to let them share all those things I talked about. And uh, and I had a, I had a list of potential names, and one of the like twenty potential names was Forever, 
And uh, we were able to, uh, I, I did hire a broker. Um, there are people in the business of helping people acquire um, internet domains. And I hired a broker and uh, they had, um, and it was not just with one of the, it, it was it was a small firm that's in that business. And they had relationships and they tracked down who owned it. And uh, it, I, I could tell just on the internet myself, it wasn't being used actively, but they tracked down who owned it. It was a major corporation that had, closed down a line of, you know, a product line that had the forever brand years before. And they'd probably signed up for it for free in 1995 as well. <laughs> and, uh, and so this was in 20, uh, that was in 2012. And, um, it cost me a high, you know, cost, I think about seven, $800,000 to buy it then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, that's, that's, uh, that's a, a deal in, in the long, long term. And, and uh, I'm amazed you were able to outbid De Beers and, and all the other diamond providers for that. Well, you know, uh, this is one thing I learned, um, you know, when I, way back, at, I think we learn in our careers and our lives and cumulatively, and hopefully we learn things and we retain that learning. And so, you know, way back when I, I talked about some of the lessons I learned, you know, from the military and leadership, but my first job other than my own entrepreneurial stuff as a kid, my first job in a real business was with Kraft General Foods. Now, and then it, they, they dropped the General Foods and it was just Kraft. Now it's Kraft Heinz. But that right. business, um, they, you know, it was all about brand name preservation. And I, I developed a lot of sensitivity around brands and the value of brands working for Kraft, Kraft Heinz. Mm. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, every time I've started a business, I've been very focused on what's going to be the name, what's going to be the brand. Okay, we own, by the way, Forever Inc., the the corporate entity, which is a Delaware C corporation. Um, it's actually a subset of a Delaware C called the Delaware B. It's a public, it's a, so it's a, it's a Delaware C corp. It's a private, um, it's a public benefit corporation. So it's a for-profit corporation under Delaware law accountable to shareholders, but because there's a public benefit, the public benefit is to the customers who um, store their memories with us. Basically, we think that that preserving their memories for the long term for multiple generations is a huge public benefit. And therefore, our under our bylaws, our board of directors has to look out for shareholder interest, but it also must look out for the long term interest of those customers who bought forever storage. So like we're actually, that. yeah, we're that actually a public benefit corporation. But, um, but the bottom line is every time I've started a company, uh, yeah, I really care about the brand and, you know, we, I, I worry about the, you you know, the domain, I worry about the brand name with forever. We've read it. We, we own the forever trademark for everything having to do with memories. So digitization, cloud storage, printing, anything having to do with photos and videos, we own the forever domain in multiple countries, not just in the U S but not in the entire world, but in major markets all over the world. Wow. Well, I mean, that, that's such a smart investment. Like you're not going to forget forever.com. That's, uh, you know, I, I could uh, have many blows to the head and I would still recall that. Yeah. And, but the, but I'll tell you right now, one thing I've learned too, is that, um, and it's, it's funny that a lot of people waste, you, you, you think back Gary and Chris to Super Bowls of the past and you know, I think this year the Super Bowl ads are going to cost seven or eight million dollars for thirty seconds, uh, and um, maybe it's ten. I don't know, something like that. 
Uh, but and and maybe ten years ago, it was five million dollars for a thirty-second ad. There are a lot of companies that have raised venture capital dollars and wasted a lot of money on Super Bowl ads over the years. You know, you don't build a brand. I mean, and there listen, there are a couple of iconic Super Bowl ads people remember, like the the famous Apple 1984 ad with the, you know, that goes way back. Um, maybe everybody doesn't remember that one, but I think a lot of people do. But, um, you know, to build a brand over time, it's hard. And there is so much noise out there. You know, there, it, it's it, it can it you know my 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 free markets company that was a b2b business to business company and you know if if you if you get a couple of big corporate clients and you save them a lot of money or, or provide a lot of benefit to them and you get buzz going in an industry and get get in the industry you know publications and things it's easy to build a b2b presence in consumer the world is just so noisy and and it's and marketing has changed so so much that you know, with social media, et cetera, it, it's a challenge. Even if you've got a great brand, it's a challenge. What do you, so, what uh, do you use? What type of uh, advertising do you do? We do very little right now because we're trying to find the efficient model. We're trying to find the model where we, you know, we spend five bucks and get back a dollar. You know, we spend one dollar and get back five, and um, it's it's difficult. It's it's so it's our our primary growth mode has been. We have these forever ambassadors I mentioned. We have over 2,600 people, a few good men, mostly women, who are out there who get a you – know, it's all through forever.com. But they assist and help and coach people, and they get a commission when they bring in a client to forever. And then um, word of mouth, and we do you know, we do, we do reels on Instagram and Facebook. We do social media stuff on Facebook. We are not spending right now any money on um, Google AdWords because – we we have not found the formula yet on you know spending one dollar and getting back five, and could, and could, we can't. Couldn't you partner? Couldn't you partner with somebody like uh, you know I, I you know I think of whatever Home Depot, whatever Walmart, whatever. But is, is there like a like my uh, you know the women go to these stores where they have picture frames and all that. What's it called? Some of these the the, the national brands. Michael. Michael. Yeah. Michael. There's another a couple other ones, right? Couldn't you partner with those guys? Um, you know, the problem is that, uh, trying to maintain good margins, you know, we have very good margins, you know, our gross margins over 65%. Um, but if it, it's, it's easy to while that away, you know, spreading yeah. everybody, you know, if, if you partner, people want to cut of the action. Yeah. And the problem too, is it, you know, with a major store like that. Okay. So in order to be, in order to be big enough for them to care, they got to make some real money on it. Yeah, sure. And and it's hard to create a set of economics where a large chain can make enough real money to care. So mm -hmm. um so we're you know we're working very hard on this. We have a great marketing team and we're you know we're building and um certainly, you know, when I get uh I get a lot of, you know, ridiculous requests, but when I get a really good request like this to be on, you know, to be on somebody's show or on their podcast, I say yes. You know, that's I've always done yeah. that. It's always been my policy. Back with free markets, you know, we I remember we got our first big media hit, which was we were on in, in Information Week magazine. And um, man, we went all out to do everything we could to support that article. And they wrote a great article and we got a lot of buzz from that. And but you know, when when the Wall Street Journal or, or Fortune magazine or Forbes or whatever came calling or information week, we would, you know, go all out and, you know, and make sure we did a good job supporting that effort and we got a good article out of it. And then same no. thing with same thing when we were public, you know, I was publicly traded CEO for about four years there, four or five years. And, 
you know, when CNBC would come calling and want us to come on, want me to come on, I, the answer was always yes. You know, Absolutely. so um, so we're doing we're doing many 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 things to enhance our marketing, but um, it's that one of the dangers to new startups, and this is a you know a watchword for any entrepreneur is you can waste a lot of money on the wrong kind of advertising. And if you're not getting a good return on your advertising dollars, you're not going to be around long. So we make sure we're very careful with how we spend our money. Well, I love the brand ambassador thing. We have, we have a technology company that's a very profitable company I was telling you about earlier. Um, and and we, we've, we're, we haven't come up with a, we don't have a sales team at all. And it's grown from nothing to, you know, a very nice company. Um, and it's now, now we're going to build a sales team. But my team, unfortunately, I'm actually fortunate. They they they're they think about how we've done it traditionally in my group of companies. It's mostly been inside salespeople. But when you have a, a product like you have, or like we have on the technology side with a SaaS product that we're that we have, I mean, brand ambassadors could be the very best way to do it, of course. But it's how you find those brand ambassadors, right? And I look at Michaels, whatever, and there's those women in the in the back that are focused on the the, the albums and the frames and all that. If it's a advantage to Michaels, let's say to to be part of this, because you you know you're gonna, in my opinion, you do more of the stuff. You're going to be more frames. You're going to be you know do more pictures and frames in your house. You're going to do more more more. I would hope right more albums too. Um, but you're also going to have a lot of on digital. You're going to keep on digital, but you're going to have access yep. to stuff so fast. You're going to use Michaels more, in my opinion. But it just we feels just, like we actually know, use. You know, I think that the Michaels is sort of the do-it-yourself you know, build your own frame. We actually have two different, um, one one very large and one medium-sized corporation we work with on the print side. And so, you know, we have a number of different partners who are out, you know, do, you know, when, when you, when you hit the print button at forever, so you, you create your photo book, you create your album, you create, you know, a, a piece of wall art, a canvas or um, mugs or holiday or Christmas ornaments, whatever it is you're creating uh, blankets. We do great blankets. You know, you're, you're literally creating the design or, you know, using a design we've pre-created, filling that with photos, putting the caption in, personalizing it, making it your own. And then it's time to order. You push the button. It, it you know, boom, at light speed, that that order is channeled to a, a factory that's going to produce that custom manufactured thing for you. And right. you know, two days later, it's going to roll off the press and be quality controlled. And then it's going to go by FedEx to your home and um, all that. All that works really, really well. And it's pretty, and it's, you know, that technology has been around for a while, but it's, it's pretty amazing when you think about it, that, you know, for a very reasonable amount of money, you can actually get a custom photo book of, you know, your mom's life or your, your daughter's, yeah. your granddaughter's first year, or your, you know, your, your son's life as he graduated from high school or whatever, whatever the, the occasion is. It's just, it's awesome that that's you, so cool. You have a way to also do like, um, uh, you know, interviews, like video interviews that you can put on this too, because I feel like that's something that I'd missed out on with my grandparents, my, my mom, um, my wife, right? Different people that I've, lo I've lost in my life. But I don't feel like we asked all the right, all the, enough questions to really get their history and, and, and to get the flavor of who they are for the grandkids going forward, right? Yeah, I've done that with I've done that with several relatives, um, and it's 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 been valuable to have that those videotapes. We did that. We did with my father in law and my mother in law. We did like a full day of interviews about two years ago, and um, that's it's it is invaluable to do that. But it's that's interesting. The idea of doing a um, you know on a on a tool, whether it's Teams or Zoom or one of the or you know one of the other tools to actually 
do that over the um, over the internet and save that. That's that's a, we don't have that yet within forever, but it's a good idea. I feel like it could be really cool. Okay, so one, of the thing, one of the things that's so interesting about our business with forever is that there is just so many ideas. You know, we oh, yeah. we have to we have years and we we we've built a really good platform. The platform is really 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 good. We have tremendous whether it's did we I believe we have the world's best digitization. I think that our you know you can go to forever.com and order a forever box gets delivered to your home. You fill it with the old videotapes, you fill it with the old the films, all that stuff, photos, negatives, whatever you have, we can digitize anything and we care. We have a special facility outside Green Bay, Wisconsin where we do all this work. We have an amazing team of people, amazing equipment and technology, a brand new facility. It's very clean. Um, interior loading dock. When the FedEx truck, ar truck arrives, it comes inside. We unload dry and clean. Everything is beautiful. But, um, you know, cool. that, so we, that's an example. And then we just our whole business, whether it's the printing, the digitization, the, the mobile apps, I really th think we built a fabulous platform. That said, oh my goodness, there are so many good ideas on things we need to do to continue to expand and improve. You know, like we have, we, um, we don't have facial recognition and auto organization yet. That's coming next year. So it's, it's basically AI, artificial intelligence type yeah. capability that's coming in 2024. We, we don't have a family tree view yet. So um, we are adding that probably in early 2025 because we, we're doing all this, helping people do all this genealogical research we're helping people capture all this content. And yeah, you can organize an album, so you can tag people and all that stuff. But we absolutely need to have the, the private um, family tree because sure. one of the issues with the, you know, there are several companies out there with public family trees and that's all great. Problem is, and it's great because all your cousins and your second cousins and third cousins all help you build this family tree, right? And that's wonderful. You get this leverage of all this help. The problem is if, you know, your name is, uh, you know, uh, you know, Mary Charles and you love to do this research and you put all this stuff together and you built your family tree, you may not want your third cousin overwriting what you've done. Right. You know, you know that what you've done 50 years from now isn't really going to be there anymore because other people are going to have overwritten it. So it's sure. forever. We want people to be able to, you know, again, people control their own account. They own it. They control, even when they're gone, they still own it. We have a relationship with them. Even when they're gone, we still Indeed. are accountable to them. And so we're going to, you know, let people build their own private family tree, let their, let their relatives access it and research it and see it. But you know, what, what Mary built in 2020, 2023 is going to still be there in 20, you know, in 2150, you know, or, or 2280. Yeah, You've got so many verticals that, like you're saying, my mind goes crazy. There's so many verticals you can you can spin off of this thing, but you have to stay focused, right? You have to keep your team very focused to do you know, to do whatever everything you have right now, expand it and grow it first, and 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 you know be the best you can at that, and and cautiously do the next vertical as you have to, right? Without yeah. without being spread too thin, and and nothing gets done right, right? So, Chris, what what other questions you got for for this all star? Oh man. So, uh, Glenna, I'm really curious. It, it sounds like, you know, you're a, a super angel and, and you're around kind of great uh, business ideas and great business, um, operators, uh, very, very frequently. H how did you know that forever was the idea? How, how did you know that was your next move? 
Uh, that Chris, that's a great question. I, you know, I've pursued things that I thought were both the, the things where I've really gone after myself and, and I've, you know, I've, I've invested in a lot of different internet companies, including niche. Um, and I've been a supporter and an advisor, et, et cetera. But the two internet companies I founded free markets, <clears throat> which was automating this industrial sourcing process and this buying process, you know, this exchange between buyers and, 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 uh, and sellers in the, um, suppliers in the industrial space. I was really passionate about that. I, I thought it was, a, I did the research. I thought it was a giant, a giant opportunity. And I was just really passionate that the world needed that. And that spreading this free market concept for industrial sourcing around the world was a good mission. I, I didn't want to do, I don't like doing, I don't like wasting my time on things that aren't mission oriented. I, I like to have real purpose in what I do. I want to be able to, I want to do, I always say, I want to do well by doing good. And, um, you know, I want to, I want to have highly purposeful, meaningful businesses I work on where I could also do really well. So wind the clock forward to forever. I just, I just was passionate that the world needed a permanent place in the internet cloud, in the cloud where people could save and share their memories and do all their memory keeping and have it be there after they were gone. And I, I just thought that that was a really important thing for the world. And I thought it was a big market. So it kind of met my criteria of I'm passionate about it. And it was a big business opportunity. So I went for it. And um, and then it gets back to that 70-30 rule or the 80-20 rule, whatever you want to call it. At some point, you know, as an entrepreneur, you don't have all the information. You don't know. And you just got to go through that door. You just got to go for it. And, uh, and, and hopefully you go for it when you really are passionate about something. Especially, so for me, the last, you know, yes, I have, you know, I, 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 I advise niche. I'm the chairman of their board. I have, you know, I have some other investments. I have some things going on, but my main focus the last 10 years has been forever. And uh, that's what I do. It's my office. You know, that's what I do every day. And, um, and so, you, you know, I think, I think that, and, and, and in order to be successful, tying it back to the earlier conversation, you got to stick to things. It's not like things go well. I, I always, I mean, a lot of things go well, but I always tell, you know, when I speak to young entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in general, I tell them, you know, it's not about if you're going to get knocked down. It's about when you get knocked down, how quickly you're going to get up and how hard are you going to be swinging when you get up, you know, because you're going to get knocked down. And and I that's what I found. It's, it, it, it's not like success is easy. I, I've if maybe other people have, you know, made a lot of money and been really successful and it's been easy. I, I will tell you right now, it hasn't for me. <laughs> I've worked really hard and many late nights and, you know, it's, it's a lot of dedication. It's taken a lot of oomph and that's was true of free markets. It was true of forever. I know it's been true of my team at niche. It's true of many other companies I've been involved in. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy to succeed. You got to work really, really hard and be really determined and you better be. You know, and one thing that makes it worthwhile is if you really like what you're doing, you know, I, I also tell, um, a great piece of advice I got when I was leaving Harvard Business School many years ago, a professor was, it wasn't a class, but it was some like farewell lecture he was giving us. And he said, um, you know, in order to be successful, you're going to have some tough, tough times in your career and you're going to have to stick to it. And, um, and, and, you know, you've got to be tough and you got to be determined and you got to have stick to And that's a good thing. But then he said, the caveat was, he said, but don't do anything you don't like for more than two years. 
you know, if if you're unhappy for a month and you're like bailing after a month, you're not going to be successful. You got to be tougher than that. You got to have more stick-to-itiveness than that. But he said, if you're if you're really unhappy with something for 24 months and you haven't changed yet, now you're hurting yourself. Because if you're unhappy, you're not going to do that well. You know, if you're unhappy, you're not you're not firing on all cylinders. You're not playing your position in life. And um, so you know, have stick-to-itiveness, be determined, but you know, don't but give it two years. And if it's not working after two years, fail. Now, for, fortunately, forever is done really well and it's working and I'm, I'm, you know, committed for the long term. But I, I, I love that piece of advice about, you know, be really determined, but, you know, make sure it's working. And that's, that's true of any job. It's true of anything, any career, any business. Yeah. That's, that's such a pragmatic and uh, oddly specific advice. And, and I love that. And, I, I can actually uh, directly personally relate to that. I I was a, a budget analyst for NASA for just under two years, and I didn't like it day one. And I didn't like it last day. And I was and to your point, like two years, I was like, no, I'm done with this. I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, and of course, I think also a lot of people have come to me over the years. Well, how do I? How do you, again, that analogy, how do I walk? I have this great job. I have a family, whatever I, I, you know, I have expenses. How do I walk through that door? And, and frankly, I, I know people who have not been successful. I mean, the majority of people aren't successful as entrepreneurs, you know, and I know people haven't been successful and, and they haven't, the people who have not been successful have not been willing to do the work. I, I say, well, okay, here's what you do. Don't leave and have no money. Keep your job. Show up every morning, you know, every Monday morning, work hard through Friday evening, do a really good job. And, but then, you know, at five o'clock or six o'clock or seven o'clock, whenever you get home or on the weekend, don't be back to our previous conversation, Chris, don't be spending your, I mean, I love football. I love sports, but don't be spending your afternoon watching football, Mm -hmm. spend your Sunday working on your business plan, you know, work hard, do a good job. Say, and oh, and by the way, don't be heading off to Cancun on a vacation, you know, save your money. Because in order to walk through that door and start a business, you've got to have a plan. You got to have the. You got to do the research. You got to make sure you're doing something worthwhile. You know what you're doing, and you got to have the money to support it. So what does that mean? It means you save your money, and you have a moonlight job working on your new business. And when you've got enough money saved and you've done enough work to know it's a good idea, that's when you walk through the door. But honestly, you know, you, you know, hey, this is a conversation between entrepreneurs. Not everybody's. Not everybody's cut out for it. Not everybody's willing to work hard enough to make that stuff happen. And and then some people aren't honest with themselves about that either. You know, some people just pretend. No doubt about it. Yeah, we, I've hired people that to, to partner with, and actually, you know, bought brought people as partners, equity partners, and and uh, you know, th- thought they were entrepreneur only. They worked in a company, and they come on board, and and in some cases, I, I was totally wrong, and they wanted to work a 40, 50 hour a week job, and, and when the times got tough, they they couldn't work the 60, 70, 80 hours because they, they just weren't built for it. And so you you, you got to know that there's there's times you, you got to be willing to work, you got to be excited to work a hundred hour a week to get to a problem or to get to a great opportunity, right? And that's and that's uh, that's not for everybody. So no. So, so Chris, what do you, what what are the takeaways you got here? I got a bunch in here. I'll see if you cover cover the takeaways I got and the, and the uh, nuggets for success that that I picked up here. Yeah, well, well, Glenn definitely made it easy to find a lot of nuggets of entre- entrepreneurial wisdom here. 
So learn from both positive and negative business experiences. You can mint money by finding better suppliers at better pricing. Mm. Like that was so true for Glenn. He created an entire business off of that. You don't succeed overnight. Leadership musical chairs is never good for business success. Great leaders are also great followers. This is also applicable for marriages. Very, very helpful. Leaders always eat last. You do well by doing good. And don't do anything you dislike for more than two years. Glenn, where can our audience find out more about you? Um, you can find out more about me by going to forever.com. Just F-O-R-E-V-E-R, the word forever.com or the brand forever.com. Yeah. I also have a LinkedIn account. I uh, I'm not uh, I do not have an X or a Twitter account right now, but I'm I'm thinking about increasing my social media exposure in the future. We'll see. And I, I picked up a couple more things there, Chris. Two things I liked a lot. So, you know, put your troops first. You know, we, we've talked about the past, but um, here's an example of somebody that definitely does that and does an amazing job with it. It's Mill, Mill, and thanks for your service, buddy. Thanks for serving our, our country because we, we we really appreciate that. I always appreciate that. I know Chris does too. Thank um, you. And then, and then, you know, in level five leadership, I I, I agree 100% with, with, with the statement you made, right? You know, you, you, got, you got to put that business ahead of yourself, right? The business, that team. Um, that, that community that you're leading, you got to put it all ahead of yourself. And and if and if you're not the right leader someday, or you know, you, there's there's something some there's an opportunity to take a bunch of cash out of it, but you know it's best for the business to keep it in and and, and serve those people that have served you, right? That's that's what a great leader does. And and I, we notice that in my businesses, you know, I got 14 businesses now, and every leader I have, I believe, thinks this way. I I, I when I watch, when it comes bonus, to bonus time, my leaders aren't talking about themselves. They're talking about their team. And, and then last, we talk about themselves. And I, got, I had a conversation an hour before this call, this, this, this podcast with one of my leaders that said, hey, Gary, Gary, and I talked to him myself on the board. He goes, guys, I want to tell you, um, I, I got a bonus plan that, that uh, I believe I want to execute on with our team. He's the CEO of a nice, nice company in Texas that we have. And uh, he said, but uh, I'm not, I'm not looking for a bonus. So I see our CFO is on the call. He's not looking for a bonus. Um, we, we don't believe we perform well enough, uh, but we, but we want to give our team bonuses. So whatever we normally, you know, think is, is applicable for us. We want to go to the team. So, I mean, again, that was a great call. I, the business was one of my only businesses that did really grow in enterprise value this year. Um, and, and, uh, but my leader saying, Hey, I don't want anything for myself. Our CFO, he's a stockholder too. Um, but boy, we sure would like to give our team some bonuses. So it's it's hard not to not to you know to honor his request when he's not looking for himself, right? So that's uh, that's what great leaders are made of, man. So really that's appreciate awesome. really appreciate this time today with you, Glenn. You you uh, you're an awesome guy. And uh, one more thing, you know, uh, Mecham the uh, auto auctions, Mecham. <laughs> you know. It is the same last name, different spelling. Yeah, I see I'm, that. I'm sure we're related somewhere back in time, but we're not uh, not closely related. And um, the spelling of my name is very unique. One, one thing I'm lucky, I'm the only Glenn Meekham. So All right. G-L-E-N-M-E-A-K-E-M. If you Google me or whatever, I'm the only one because the, the my last name is a unique. You know, Glenn is not, Glenn's a very normal, like American name, but it's not that common. And, uh, and then Meekum is um, not a completely unusual name like the Meekum Auto Auctions, but I think they spell it M E E C H A M, and we spell yep. it M E A K E M. 
So, so our, Dan, our, spe our spelling is just very unique. So Dan is a friend of mine. The founder of that company, Dan Mecum, is a great guy. You and him, we get along great. He, he's a servant guy. He's, a, he's an old school kind of hillbilly. You, you'll admit it. He's, he's kind of like me. He's a ditch digger, hillbilly, whatever you want to call him. But he is one of the most successful guys I know. And, and, and he, he is because he's, he stays humble. And he's just a really special human being. But we're, we're going to get him on this show as well. He said he'd do it. I'd not be able to nail him down. But what a, you know, what a great name to be associated with. Two great entrepreneurs. Yeah. Same, same pronunciation. Um, different spelling, which is a good thing. Awesome. Hey, well, let me just say thank you to the two of you. What a, what a pleasure it's been to spend time with you, Gary, and you, Chris. Uh, you guys are my kind of guys, and I just really appreciate your inviting me to be on your podcast. And thank you so much for the time. And I'm also going to be a customer talking about this. That you, you can include me in as an ambassador. Don't pay me a dime, okay? If I perform okay. really well, you send me a Christmas gift or something, right? <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah, forever.com. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Ben. I'd love to stay in touch. Absolutely wonderful. Great. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thanks so much. Take appreciate care. Bye now. How about that guy, Glenn? Chris, he was awesome, wasn't he? Oh, man. He was incredible. That was amazing. As Stitch Digger CEO, where you know, Chris, you're doing a great job finding finding great people, and uh, you know, some of my relationships have come through Forest, and then and then you've done a great job finding others that that really match what we want, right? Leaders in their industry who are just uh, are, who are great people that are leading great businesses, and boy, Glenn was an example, a guy that really has created an industry. He's not only top one percent in this industry; he's created an industry, right? And how fun is that to talk about? So. Yeah. Yeah, it's really inspiring. So thanks for everything, Chris. Thanks for being. Thanks for uh, helping me with all this, and uh, thank you, Glenn, for being our our guest today. Um, until next time, we'll see you on Ditch Digger CEO in the next next week or so. But uh, what a great day! See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo. Cans, paper routes, mowing lawns, cans.